So starting in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so good to us, Lord, that you do not leave us in our our troubles. You don't leave us in our trials to uh, face them alone, Lord, but you step into the the yoke with us, alongside of us, and uh, you comfort us, you support us, you help us, Lord. Um, Just pray that you'd open our hearts to receive your word, to receive your comfort this morning, and uh, to be able to uh, comfort those around us, Lord, who are in, in any tribulation, Lord. So we just pray your blessing on this morning, on the study of your word. I ask, Lord, that you'd fill my mouth with your word, that it would be all of you and, and none of me. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Go ahead and be seated. So our, our roadmap this morning, uh, the, the passages that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at um, the God of all comfort, starting in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be looking at the comfort in the incarnation. I'll explain that word uh, when we get there um, from Philippians 2 and Isaiah 53. We're going to be looking at the invitation to come near from Matthew 11 and Hebrews 4. And then we're going to come back to 2 Corinthians and look at how uh, we may comfort others. So let's start with our, the first part, the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So verse 3 again says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So Paul begins right after, after the greeting to the, to the church. He begins by praising God, the heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he describes God in two ways. He describes him as First, the Father of mercies. God is the Father of mercies, literally uh, compassion or pity. He is the merciful Father who has pity on his children. Now, that's quite the contrast from the, the very popular misunderstanding that characterizes maybe, maybe God the Son, right? Jesus is the, the kind and loving and compassionate one, but, but God the Father, he's stern and strict and judgmental. But look what Paul says. He says he's the Father of mercy. He is the mercy, merciful, compassionate Father. And he says the God of all comfort or the God of every comfort. So in every trial that we endure while walking with Christ, God is there to provide comfort, not in some, but in all of those situations, right? Every consolation or encouragement that we need comes from God. So he talks about him being the God of all comfort. What does that look like? What does this word comfort mean? In the Greek, it's paraklesis, is the the word comfort means literally to call to one side or called to one side. Or exhortation and encouragement, it can mean consolation or solace. So God, the God of all comfort, is the God who comes alongside of us. He comes to our side. He exhorts and encourages us. He consoles us. He gives solace to us. This is who God is. Now, that word paraklesis, there's another uh, form of it with the same root, which Jesus used of the Holy Spirit. And it gives us a, a clearer picture of this idea of comfort. So Jesus told his disciples in 
John 14, 15, and 16, he talks about how he's going to send them the Holy Spirit when he departed, who he called the helper. I'm going to send you another helper. That's this Greek word, parakletos. So the Holy Spirit was going to abide with them, teach them, and testify of Jesus. So that word parakletos is translated in different translations, either as helper or advocate or comforter, one who intercedes, a helper, aider, assistant. That is, that is who the Holy Spirit is for us. And God indeed has given that Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper to every believer to dwell within us, to be with us at all times, to encourage and equip and empower us for the ministry God places before us. So when you think of a helper coming alongside, you can't get any closer than inside, right? In that coming alongside. But not only is the Holy Spirit the one who helps and comforts us, but we actually see that all three members of the Trinity comfort us, right? As we just looked in John 14, 15, and 16, the Holy Spirit is called the helper, the paraclete, the parakletos. And then the son is referred to as the helper in several passages. First in John 14, where Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper, which implies that he is the helper at that time who was alongside of them. He was there physically alongside of them. He says, I'm going to send you another helper, which is the Holy Spirit. First John 2, uh, John refers to Jesus. He says, we have a, an advocate, a helper, Jesus Christ the righteous. In Luke chapter 2, uh, Simeon was, was praying and it says he was waiting for the consolation or the, par- the, the parakletos of Israel, speaking of him waiting for the Messiah. So Jesus is the helper as well. And then now here in 1 Corinthians, we have the God of all comfort. The Father is the helper as well. So the nature of the Trinity, the whole Trinity, is consistent. It's that of a helper, one who comes to our side to aid and encourage and comfort. Now, one of the main concepts that we need to understand in this comfort that we receive from every member of the Trinity is this idea of coming alongside. Now, we understand why coming alongside is a comfort, because when we are going through something difficult, it's comforting when someone comes near to us, right, puts their arm around you and says, hey, I'm here with you. That is a very clear picture of comfort that I think we've all received, whether it's on a small scale or in something really difficult. People coming alongside and saying, I am here, I am with you. That strengthens us. Now, the most vivid demonstration that I believe that we have of the comfort of God is what we see in the incarnation of Christ, him coming alongside. So we're going to look at the comfort in the incarnation. What does incarnation mean? It's not a word we use a lot. It literally means in the flesh. It's the idea of Jesus taking on flesh, right? That word, you think of the word carne, which we know it's meat or flesh, right? Incarnation, where it says in John 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It refers to Jesus taking on a human body and becoming a man. So in the incarnation, Jesus became a man as a means of drawing near to us, of being that helper that, or that comforter. So there's a couple passages that I want to look at uh, that will help us understand not only that he became a man, but what kind of man did Jesus become as a means of being a helper, a comforter. So go ahead, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2 if you'd like. Um, 
I also have it on the screen. And there's, there's, there's two passages, Philippians 2 and Isaiah 53. We'll get to that one in a minute. Philippians 2 is about the humiliation of Christ. Now, when we hear the word humiliation, we usually think of, I'm super embarrassed, I'm humiliated. But the word literally means to be made low or pressed down. So the, the being made low of Jesus. So let's look at, at verse 5 to start. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Now we're going to stop there because I want to point out that the, the, the starting point that we have, that Paul is giving us here in this passage, is that Jesus, before he came to earth, was fully God. He dwelt in heaven as God. And as uh, the scholar A.T. Robertson says, he says, in his pre-incarnate state, Christ possessed the attributes of God and so appeared to those in heaven who saw him. That is the state that Jesus came from. Now, I think a, a good description that we have of this in Revel, uh, is in Revelation chapter 1, which is Jesus in his, after he was uh, incarnate, his post-incarnate state, if we're going to use the, the big words, uh, after he had taken on flesh. But it's the same glory and majesty that he had. So listen to John's description as he is having uh, this vision. Jesus is giving him the revelation. So it says in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So this is the I think it gives us a good understanding of the glory and the majesty that Christ had before he came to earth. This is what he left behind because you contrast that with the humble, meek, and lowly Jesus. It's a different thing. So he started off, we start off that he was in the form of God, but it says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, the, the wording of this passage, I think, can be a little tricky because we're like, Wait, what does robbery have to do with anything? Um, I think the easiest way to explain it is to read uh, the translation from the NLT because it gives it, I think, very clearly and accurately the, the idea that is being portrayed. So the, in the NLT, verse 6 says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or something to hold on to. Right? He could have. He could have held on to that at all costs and stayed in heaven, and where would we be? We would be here, separated from God. He laid that aside to take on humanity. It says, he made himself of no reputation, verse 7. Literally, he emptied himself. Not that he became less God on earth, because he was fully God, while he was on earth, but that he took on a human body. He took on the state and appearance of something lower. One commentator uh, in very old English, which is why I'm going to paraphrase, he likened it to uh, like a king who took off his crown and put down his scepter, and he put on the clothes of a slave or a servant boy, somebody low, and he lived life 
in that way. I think that's a very good portrayal of what Jesus did because the king is still the king in that moment, but he has put on the humble appearance of a man. So that's what he did. So Jesus, he says, he taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So Jesus went from the form of God in verse 6, the former essence of God, to the form of a servant. That is how he appeared to us. He came to earth as a man. But not just a man. It says he took the form of a bondservant, a slave. It would have been humiliation, a lowering down of himself. If Jesus were to come to the earth and be born in a palace and live as a king reigning over a country. That would have been humiliation. But Jesus didn't just come to that level. No, he came as a servant, as a bondservant, as a slave. And then it says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So as a human, as a slave, he humbled himself, he made low. So he was low already as a servant, but he made himself lower. You see a vivid picture of that at the Last Supper as Jesus was there with his disciples and it says he put on the towel and he washed the disciples' feet. Now there was typically many servants in houses at that time, and, but it was the job of the lowest servant when guests would come in to wash the feet of the guests before dinner. So he wasn't like, hey, I'm the, I'm the top dog servant, you go wash. No, he took on, he put on the towel, and he washed the feet. He made himself low. Even as a servant, he made himself low. It says, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So as a humble, lowly servant, he obeyed the Father all the way to the point of death. Right? For the God of the universe to die in our place, it is totally unimaginable. But not only did he die in our place. He says he died the death on the cross. He died the most horrific, disgraceful, awful death imaginable. Crucifixion in that day was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. That is what Jesus did for us. That is a long way from the glory of heaven, right? The, the humiliation of the cross. So let's just put this in a visual form for. So he was God, he became lower, and he became a man. As a man, he became a servant, but he went lower. As a servant, became a low servant. Even lower, as a low servant, he died in our place. But even lower than that, he died like the worst criminal. From the heights of glory to the depths of humiliation. Listen, our sin should have driven him away from us. That is our natural response to other people's sin, isn't it? We want to move away. How dare they? How could they? And Jesus, holy and perfect, that is what we should expect. But because of his deep love and compassion for humanity, for us, he says, I'm going to move towards your sin. I'm going to come towards you to make a way to defeat sin and so we can be reconciled with Jesus. That is incredible. Isaiah 53 has even more to say about the incarnation. You can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah 53, this passage is sometimes called the suffering servant. It was written 700 years prior to Jesus' incarnation, but there is detail and clarity that only God could know. Now, there's a lot in this passage. We could spend a few weeks going through this passage, uh, but I just want to focus on the parts that describe how Jesus was viewed, how he was treated, what he suffered in coming to earth and coming alongside of us. 
So Isaiah starts out, he says, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And then he says, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So no form or comeliness. He had no appearance. He had no magnificence when you looked at him. He says, when we see him, there's no beauty. There is nothing about him that would make people desire him in looking at Jesus. Remember, compare that to Revelation when John went on and on just trying to capture who Jesus is and how he appeared. He didn't come as a handsome, striking king that people would follow because he looked like a king. You think back in, in the book of Samuel when the Israelites, they wanted a king, right? And they were stoked about Saul because he was head and shoulders above all the other guys and he was handsome. They're like, oh, that guy, he's a king. Look at that guy. That's not how Jesus came. He came as an ordinary man. Then verse three says, he is despised and rejected by men. The king of the universe was despised by men. And he was rejected. He should have been welcomed with open arms, but he was rejected. I think it's easy to read over these things, right? You're like, yep, that's what happened to Jesus. All these things, it's terrible. But, but just put yourself in this, these shoes of being despised, knowing that everybody around you, the vast majority of people despise you and being rejected. Nobody likes to feel rejected. That is what Jesus did for us, that was what he experienced. Not only the physical suffering and anguish, but also emotional. It says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was a man who knew sorrow well. He knew it so well that Isaiah calls him, he is the man of sorrows. That word sorrow means grief or pain. It can refer to physical or mental pain. He was acquainted with grief. He knew it experientially. And that grief literally means sickness, right? He experienced many physically sick people. He healed many sick people. He understood the consequences of it, but he was also well acquainted with the spiritual sickness that we all have, which is sin. And Jesus, perfect, holy, separate from sinners, Jesus, he came to us and he was well acquainted with our suffering. But what did we do? It says, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Instead of looking to Jesus, we turned away from Jesus. He was, he was despised. He was not valued. He was seen as, as nothing. What did he do for us? Verse four says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Right? We turned away from him, but he carried our grief and our sorrow. So you see in verse three, he, he knew sorrow and he knew grief, but not just for himself. Jesus, he came to us and he bore, he carried our grief and our sorrow. There's no better way to comfort a weary soul than to come and carry their sorrow. And that is what Jesus did for us. It says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We esteemed or considered him as afflicted by God. Now, the, the thinking of the Jews in that day, in Jesus' day, was so backwards. They're like, oh, this man's a blasphemer, so he deserves this. He deserves to die. And that it was God who was punishing him because he was blaspheming God, of course. Their thinking was backwards. 
But at the same time, there is an element of truth because it was the Father who bruised him, who crushed him for our sin. And that's what verse 5 says. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So in order to pay for our transgression, to pay for our iniquities, to bring us peace and healing, Jesus was wounded, or it could also mean pierced. He was bruised. He was chastised. He was beaten. He received stripes to pay for my sin and your sin. Not, yes, for sin in general, but for our specific sin. So our sin brought suffering upon Jesus, but his suffering brings healing to us. Jesus came near, so near, not just like I'm kind of near you, but near enough that he could step in and take the punishment that we deserved. Verse six says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in the, the, the image of, of the good shepherd with his sheep, we as the sheep, we went astray. We all said, I'm gonna do my own thing. We've all done that at some point. We have all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way instead of his. The last thing that we deserve is comfort. But that is what Jesus gave us. And it says, the Lord has laid on him. The Father laid all of our sin upon Jesus. You think of the physical anguish of the cross that Jesus experienced that he bore. And that pales in comparison to the emotional, to the spiritual anguish that Jesus felt as he drank down the full cup of the wrath of God, as the wrath of God for our sin was poured out on Jesus. It was laid on him so we could receive his righteousness. Verse 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted. He suffered much at the hands of the Roman soldiers. It says, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He just took it. It says, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. It says, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He died. He gave up his life in order to pay for our sin. Verse 9 says, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Emphasizing once again that the Father, he bruised, he crushed, he put Jesus to grief to pay for our sin. He became our sin and he absorbed everything that we deserved. And his soul was made an offering for sin. So when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Right? The good shepherd became the sacrificial lamb to atone for our sin. Verse 11 says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He poured out his soul. He didn't hold back a single thing to pay for our sin. Jesus the righteous was called a criminal. He was hung between two thieves. He was seen, that man, he's a criminal. He's on the cross. He must be. And he carried our sin. He interceded. He went before the Father on our behalf 
as transgressors, not when we'd fixed ourselves up, but as transgressors, he interceded for us. All of this is to, is to show us and remind us that Jesus came near to us. He came near to our sin. He took our sin and the punishment of it. We had no hope. We had no hope of rescue. We had no way of escape. We were dead in our sin, but Christ came near. He came to us to save and rescue us, to provide the ultimate comfort for our souls. That is the comfort we find in the incarnation, is that Jesus came near to us when it would have been perfectly reasonable for him to stay far, far from us. But now, not only has he come near to us, but he calls us to come near to him. Which is part three, the invitation to come near. It's astonishing enough that Jesus would come and die for our sin, that he would come to earth, he would come near enough to, to rescue us from sin, but he has also called us to come near to him to find rest and grace. And he, has, he did it both well on earth and while he was in heaven, after he ascended to heaven. So while he was on earth, we see in Matthew uh, 11 that he calls us to him. So in this chapter, Jesus had been preaching to the multitudes. He'd been teaching them many things. And then in verse 25, he had begun to pray, thanking the Father for delivering to him the wisdom that he was sharing to the people, what he was teaching them. And, and not just revealing it to the people who were wise, but to the people, just the common people. And then he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus extends this invitation to the people to come and learn from him and find rest. So he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. So come to me. That's an invitation to draw near to him. At this point, Jesus was on earth. He had come to us, and now he invites them, come to me. Well, who should come to him? He says, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Those, that's two verbs there, laboring. It means toiling hard or wearing out. And heavy laden is like loaded down. So if you are worn out and loaded down, Jesus says, come to me. We often resonate with those things. We often feel those things. Now, it seems in the context that Jesus is providing a contrast to the culture where not only did they have the law that had been given to them, but there'd been generations of rabbis who had said, well, this law means all these other things, and, and this law means this, this, and this, and it was a heavy burden, and people couldn't keep up. It's hard enough just for the law, all those 600 and something laws that are in the Old Testament to keep track of those. And then on top of that, all these other details and caveats had been added to it. That was a heavy burden. And Jesus says, no, come to me, learn from me. I'm going to give you rest. But whether the burden that we feel is, is from the way that sin has become legalism, right? The brokenness of sin has become legalism. That's one way that sin shows up, but also just shows up in the brokenness of this world where broken sinners hurt other sinners. So whatever the reason that you feel loaded down and worn out, Jesus invites us to draw near to him. And it says, what will he give? He will give rest or refreshing. He continues, verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
when Jesus invites us, when he calls us to take his yoke upon us, he's not calling us, here, come bear this great heavy burden, but neither is he calling us to complete inactivity. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, because the, the yoke, right? Remember, the yoke was the, the thing that went on the shoulders around the necks of the, the oxen, and it was used to pull heavy carts, it was, and it symbolized something heavy and burdensome. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, just get out of the way. I'll, do, I'll, I'll, I'll carry it all for you. Get in the back. But neither does he just stand there and watch us and say, just work harder. He says, I'm going to get in the yoke with you. And I think that's important to realize because Jesus, many, many, many times, the majority of the time, he does not come to us in our suffering and say, I'm just going to beam you out. I'm just going to transport you out and you won't have to deal with it, which is when we're in suffering, that's what we like. That's what we pray for. Like, God, just take me out of this. Get me out of here. Jesus doesn't remove us from it. He places himself into it with us. So the place where we find rest for our souls is not the place where there are no burdens. It's the place where Jesus is carrying those burdens with us. And if that was not a clear enough picture of his heart, Jesus tells us, what his heart is like. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle means meek or humble or mild in his heart towards us. And lowly, right? You, like we talked about the humility of Christ. I think we understand that. But you think low, you think accessible. Picture the burdened and heavy heart just crushed under the weight of this world, under the weight of sin, of suffering. And Jesus says, I am lowly. I'm going to come to you, to where you are in your pain, and I'm going to step alongside and help you carry that burden. So when you are under that weight of sin or sorrow, know that Christ is moving towards you. He is coming towards you in your suffering. His heart is one of compassion, of mercy, of comfort to you in that moment. But so often we view God as a drill sergeant standing there being like, all right, get up, fix yourself, do better, shape up. That's how we view him, don't we? So often, like, I just got to get over this thing. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be suffering. I shouldn't be having a hard time with this. I shouldn't be just struggling under, under this weight of what I'm going through. But that's not what we see here. We see Jesus saying, I'm lowly. I am accessible. I'm coming down to the place where you are in your suffering. And I'm going to get under that weight with you and help carry you and help lift you up. So to every sinner and sufferer in the room, Jesus says, come. He says, come to me. And what will we find? He says, you will find rest for your souls. You can have rest for your bones after a night of sleep, and you can wake up without rest in your souls. You've all experienced it, I'm sure. But if you have rest in your soul, in the deepest place of you, you're good on two hours of sleep. You're good after a sleepless night because Jesus has given you rest for your soul. And why does he give us, how does he give us that rest? Why do we find that rest or refreshing? Because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word easy means good or gracious, kind, pleasant. That is the yoke that we are bearing as we walk with Jesus. He says it's light. It's not heavy. So he gave us this invitation while on earth. But you're like, well, how do we come to Jesus now? He's in heaven. Does that invitation still stand? Hebrews 4 would tell us, that yes, it still stands. He invites us to that same rest from his place in heaven. 
Verse 14 of Hebrews chapter four says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. He says, we no longer have an earthly priest. We have Jesus, the high priest. He is the one who mediated between us and the father and the righteousness of Christ has been placed on us. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father in heaven at this moment. Romans tells us, interceding for us, making intercession for us, in this moment for us. So our hope, our righteousness is Christ himself and he is in heaven and he has given us access to the Father through him. So seeing that our hope is in heaven, that we have Jesus, our high priest in heaven, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Let our faith remain steady. Why? Verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he is not a high priest who's removed, who says, oh, you poor sinners out there. No, he came to us. He walked in it. He experienced it. He faced the suffering so he can have compassion on us. He can sympathize with us. He felt the temptations that we face. He tasted the weakness that we feel. And though he is in heaven, he has not left us helpless. Because he says, so let us therefore, because Jesus is in heaven, because he can sympathize with our weakness, he says, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and grace and find grace to help in time of need. Because we have Jesus, he understands what we face. He's come to us. He says, we can boldly come to him. We can go to the throne of grace. When we come to the throne of grace, we have no expectation of judgment or condemnation, but we have the promise to obtain mercy in our weakness and grace to help us. That is a promise. On Thursday, Evan uh, taught on the book of Esther, and I always, I always think of, when I read this passage, that's what comes to mind. Because remember in the story of Esther, she was going to go before the king, and there was one basically one rule, don't go to the king unless you're called because if, he's not, if he does not lift his scepter towards you, you'll be killed. And that's the picture that we can have of going before the throne of God. And apart from Jesus, that should be our expectation. Esther went with fear and trembling, not knowing what the king would do. But that is not the scenario that we find ourselves in because of Jesus. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. And at the throne of grace, we're going to find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Jesus came near to us and he calls us to come to him to find rest and grace, mercy and comfort. This is a promise that we have as children of God by faith. If you are a child of God, this access belongs to you. No fear and trembling, no expectation of condemnation. No, that's been dealt with at the cross Now we come boldly to find grace. And as he comforts us, he allows us to comfort others. It's our fourth part that we may comfort others. We have received comfort from the God of all comfort. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says he is the God of all comfort. And verse 4 says, who comforts us in all our tribulation. So understanding how God has comforted us how he has come to us to come alongside us. He does that for us in all our tribulation. He helps us. He encourages us. He walks alongside us in all our tribulation. All means all. Every 
kind of tribulation. Every suffering, every heartache, every challenge that we face as we are following Jesus, that will be met with comfort and help from the Lord. Whatever trouble you are facing, God is there with you. Now, if you go off and you live in sin, you don't have that promise of comfort. If you are outside of Christ, you do not have that promise of comfort. But as we walk with Jesus, we have the guarantee of his help by our side. And haven't so many of us experienced that, that comfort from the Lord, where it seems like when the trial is the hardest, when the heat is up the most, that his presence is so close beside us, like he is in the yoke with us. And as the burden grows greater, yeah, we feel it. But he is carrying the heavy side of the burden, isn't he? I mean, you think of, you think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Daniel's three friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace. And when they looked in there, the fire was seven times hotter. What did they see? One like the Son of Man standing there with them. That is the expectation that we can have. But the comfort that we receive is not just for you. He comforts us so we can comfort others. He continues, He comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Listen, when the Lord walks with you through a time of trouble, he is preparing you to walk with others through a time of trouble, which gives purpose to our pain. That is very gracious of the Lord to not leave us in our pain and say, you just have to suffer this and there's no good that's going to come out of it. We might not see a reason for it for ourselves, We might not see the full weight of it this side of eternity, but the suffering that we go through, that we face, the pain that we face, that God walks us through, that he comforts us through, that's not just for you. Receive it, yes, but know that he is equipping you for a ministry of helping others, of comforting others, of walking alongside others. Knowing that, like I said, it gives purpose, but it also it helps us to take our eyes off ourselves in the pain because that's a very easy thing to do, isn't it? When we are in the midst of just feeling it, our eyes go, poor me, this is hard. And it's okay to acknowledge that it's hard. We can't just pretend like our pain doesn't exist, but knowing that it's not just for you, that makes it a little bit, I guess, easier, doesn't feel like the right word, but it makes it a little bit easier to go through. So we can say, this is not just for me, this is for somebody else. So I want to get everything I can from the Lord as he is close to me in this time. So the trouble that we face is equipping us, is preparing us to comfort others in their trouble. Now notice, he says, in any trouble or in all trouble, the comfort that you receive from the Lord is equipping you to comfort anyone in any situation. Why? It says, because the, with the, because he comforts us, we comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The reason that, that you can comfort anybody in any trial after you have gone through a trial is because the comfort is from God. The source of comfort is Jesus. There is an element of comfort that we receive when somebody else has walked through the same thing, right? They've, they've been through it. They've experienced cancer. They've experienced the loss of a loved one. And they can say, man, I know how that feels. That is, there is an element of comfort to that. But the text does not say it is limited by what we've experienced. 
because you do not comfort others just with your experience. There is an element of that. But the comfort that you can comfort others with is the fact that you have been comforted by Jesus, that you know the God of all comfort, reminding and encouraging those who are suffering, hey, I've not been through what you've been through. And I'm not going to pretend to understand. But what I do know is that when I went through something really difficult, Jesus was with me. And I felt his presence with me. And he is the God of all comfort. And that they can experience that same comfort, the comfort of God directly from the God of all comfort. That is the hope that we have, the grace that he's given us after we've walked through trials to point other people to the source. Now, a few things I want to notice about comfort, maybe some practical things, is remembering that comfort, it means to to come alongside, to help, to encourage, to advocate. It does not mean to fix. And I think something that I've experienced, I think we've all experienced, whether you're with somebody who is going through something or you're going through it yourself, is when we see somebody in trouble, we want to fix it. We want to come up with something to say that's like, I'll just say this thing and then it'll make it all better. It'll just, because we don't know what to do. We don't like suffering. We don't like, we're not comfortable in it. We're not comfortable in other people's suffering. So it's really easy to look to ourselves and say, well, what can I say that's just going to make it better? You know, God has this, you know, it's going to be okay. You'll get over it. It's not really comforting when you're hurting, is it? But look, look at the example that we have of comfort in Jesus is that when we were in sin, when we were his enemies, what did he do? He came to us. He came alongside of us. Now, I also want to acknowledge that Jesus did fix the problem, right? He paid for our sin because he can do that. But that's been done. The fixing is done. We now get to look to Jesus. Often what is most helpful to those who are hurting, what is most comforting is walking alongside of them. Be comfortable in their grief and their pain and their trouble. Just be close like he was close and is close with us. Just to help them, to say, I love you and I'm with you, whatever you need. I think if you've walked through pain, you know that's the most comforting thing that anybody can say. Is I'm with you and I love you and I'm really sorry. And you put your arm around them, literally coming alongside of them. That is what the Lord has done with us and done for us in our trouble. And that is what he's given us to do, is to walk alongside other people in their trouble and look to Jesus together. And we're going to close with this promise that we have in verse 5, the promise that Paul knew well, that he'd experienced, as the, that he says, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation or comfort also abounds through Christ. As the sufferings of Christ abound in your life. Know this, that the comfort of Christ is always going to be more. Whatever affliction we have, his grace will be more. Whatever our sin is, as the song says, his mercy is more. Whatever your pain is, whatever affliction or tribulation that you go through, his comfort will abound more, and not just for you, but so your comfort can abound more to those who are hurting around you, as he is the God of all comfort. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you just for your mercy, Lord, that you would not leave us in our sin. You do not leave us in our suffering. You are not absent, but you are with us, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to receive your comfort this morning, Lord. Give us grace to know how to comfort others. 
and to understand, Lord, that our, our pain and the comfort that we receive from you is not just from us, but let us extend it to others, Lord. Pray that you administer these things to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.